I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day, ladies and gentlemen. This podcast was interesting, talking to Jim Penman from uh, Jim's group, Jim's Mowing. Um, And an interesting conversation. We spent quite a bit of it talking about um, epigenetics and how one's ancestors almost dictates the people they become, learned experiences from people thousands of years ago um, often show who we are or what we are capable of. And I haven't seen the science of it, or on it rather. Um, He is a big believer in this and he's a big believer in that we could actually go in and change people's epigenetics and uh, make them better at doing certain things, whether that is productivity or, or business or whatever. Um, now, whether or not that is the case, that's what he's spending. I think he said $3 million a year uh, on research in, into doing that. And Jim has quite a bit of controversy around some of the things that he's uh, said in the past. People uh, accuse him of being... Um, really interested in things like eugenics. Um, I brought that up with Jim and he said, no, 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 people are confused. They think they are correct because I use the word epigenetics and they're becoming confused uh, with the words. Now, I don't know. I just don't know. It's very interesting what he's saying. And and I I went back and forth with myself because he did mention um, indigenous people in the podcast. And I know that that is a hot button topic in Australia right now. Um, but I wasn't going to not let him on the podcast. I think it was interesting to hear someone's point of view. Um, but I guess it remains to be seen whether or not this uh, there's any validity to what he's saying. I'm not sure. Uh, but it's interesting to hear people's opinions. Now, you may be a scientist in the comment section or something like that. I know most comment sections are filled with scientists, but you may actually have an idea of what you're talking about. Please let us know if he's he's onto it. We also spoke spoke about how farmers, like maybe 100, 200, 300 years of, uh, of someone being a farmer or their families being farmers, maybe their epigenetics won't allow them to uh, become successful in big cities. So it is an interesting one, but... Um, I thought I'd just jump on early in this to say, like, we don't know. This, this scientific field, whether or not it's been debunked, I'm not quite sure. Um, but yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting what he had to say. I don't know if he's correct. I'd like to know. Uh, maybe you know. So let me know in the comment section down below your thoughts on this podcast and, and what you think about what Jim has to say on epigenetics. Uh, it's a field that I know bugger all about. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Penman from Jim's Group. How you doing, mate? Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, doing well. Everybody knows the face on that logo of Jim's mowing or, or Jim's anything, really. But that—that that is you. Yeah, that is me. That is me. If you, actually, you. if you actually Google Jim Penman images, there's a, there's a picture of me with a beard and a hat against an old trailer. That's taken from that actual photo. How was that uh, logo designed? Well, it wasn't much of a design. <laughs> what, 
all I did was uh, when I started out, I, before I started as a franchise, I used to put my photo on leaflets because it, it got a better response that way. And then when we franchised, I said to the graphic artist, we'll just, you know, do a design of me, of the, of the, of the photo. And, and it was just a line drawing of that. And then we put the name Jim. The hardest thing was working out what lettering to use. We actually tried a few and stuck them around the office. So that, that's how it began. And then we changed the logo a few years later because it was the original was a bit uh, bit solemn. So we made it a bit more it, it is difficult to change logos and, and, and whatnot. And I know a lot of money from certainly large businesses goes into designing logos. But it is like it's like picking a child's name, isn't it? It's uh, I, in my experience. Uh, at the very least, picking a brand name is is very very difficult. But um, obviously, yours not as difficult. Um, well, but... I would think the total amount of work with me was probably half an hour, <laughs> mostly trying to work out the best font. So it was really not much of an effort at all. Talk to me through. Um, I want to talk across a whole range of things, but where did Jim's uh, Jim's group come from? Where where did that sort of originate? Well, I intended to be an academic. Um, I wanted to, uh, I did a PhD in history back in the 70s and with the idea that, uh, you know, rethinking the world of history, of society, of how it works and so forth. And I used to do lawn mowing as, as a sideline because it was kind of good exercise and paid pretty well and even managed to buy a small house when I was a student. So it was good as a sideline. And then when I ended up, the end of my uh, academic career went nowhere. There was no possible way I was going to get a job. So I just started mowing lawns full time. But the aim of it was to, the implications of the research I did, even though they were in history, were, were all in biology. And, and I wanted to run a research institute, but I had no money. So I sort of had to become rich in some ways. That was kind of the idea behind it. That was the drive. And I, and I currently do have this research. It's spending about $3 million a year. But I'm just about to go and meet my um, research head for lunch interested in because you are working in the field of epigenetics and um, yes. basically what travels through uh would, would you say would you say this is correct travels through genes of people or is expressed through genes and how uh, a person or what a person becomes later in their life is often uh, decided generations before is that a fair way of, of, of yes. looking at well, epigenetics it's decided by your parents and your grandparents because epigenetics and but also by your own life experience too so all that affects, see, a gene basically is a way of pumping out a protein. I mean, that's a simple way to look at it. And, and these little genes have taps on them. You can have things like a tap that turns, turns it off, like a methyl group, or turns it down. You can open it up. So, so it's, it's basically stuff that attaches on the genes to, find, to work out how they work. And, that, and that's what basically makes the difference between a society which is wealthy or a society that is poor or one that's aggressive or passive, those kind of things all to do with character, with creativity. They're all to do with the way genes are turned on or off. Let's say a, uh, a society that is poor, let's look at sub-Saharan Africa perhaps, would yes. you say that, that that is more to do with genes than outside uh, interactions with people? Well, it's not to do with genes as such because the genetic, genetically similar, South, um, sub-Saharan Africans and, and, and us are the same. Essentially, we're extremely similar species. You, there's more variation in, in chimpanzees and a few hectares of Congolese rainforest than there is in the entire human race. Genetically, are very, very similar. The difference is in what happens to the genes, whether they're turned on or off. And that's got to do with history and with culture and all kinds of things. But until you change the genetics, until you change the epigenetics, I should say, 
you, you can't you can't do away with the fundamental differences and inequalities. Uh, let's say there's a, there's a family who have been downtrodden for 500 years. You yes. know the likelihood of uh, child A coming out of that family in 2023 uh, and going on to be a successful entrepreneur or something like that is unlikely. Uh, bearing on their, or, or just because, well, not just because, but one of the mitigating factors may be that they just don't have the skills built into their genome to go out and 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 try and chase these dreams that some people may have. Perhaps it's more to do with survival, and and you know because they have been so downtrodden throughout history that the, the likelihood of them succeeding is is very low. Yes. Well, yeah, they've got different characters, another way of looking at it. Um, there's a um, economic historian, Gregory Clark, that pointed out that the, the, the character of, of people in Britain changed dramatically over the years growing up to the Industrial Revolution. They became quite different. They were more, um, the, the gap between skilled and unskilled labour in terms of wages went down. People were a lot more interested in, in gaining skills. They were interested in becoming educated. They became different psychologically, temperamentally. There was an epigenetic change that took place. And people in sub-Saharan Africa, it's not so much the fact they've been downtrodden, they're in a society which has different kinds of requirements. Or choose another example, Aboriginals as an example. Now, Aboriginals are perfectly adapted by, um, their epigenetics is perfectly adapted to a hunter-gatherer society. But they're, they're very good at it. They'd be far better off than we would in that kind of society because they're very good on, on close family bonds, those kind of things. It's just that the epigenetics that suits a hunter-gatherer society doesn't work quite as well in an industrial society. They're, genetically speaking, they're very similar, but the epigenetics is different and it's, it's, it's evolved for a different purpose. But you could understand where, when you say something like uh, Indigenous people are genetically uh, predisposed for not being able to deal with certain Sorry, situations. Ep epigenetically. Epi wrong. Epigenetically. Genetically, genetically almost identical. Really, really, really similar. Don't be fully really predisposed. Color, uh, color, of, color of skin and so forth is the epigenetics that matter. That's the difference, you see. Um, when I put my books out, um, I got some really hostile press from racists. They didn't like it because they liked the idea that some races are better than others. And I said, no, they're not better. They're, they're exactly genetically the same. It's the epigenetics. And epigenetics is, is profoundly changeable. So the idea is that the white man is, is, is the genetically superior, as people used to think 150 years ago, it's just ridiculous. Not at all. We're the same. But the epigenetics is different. If you can change the epigenetics, then everything else changes. Exactly the same, apart from maybe some, you know, melanin content, that type of stuff. Trivial. Uh, How much has the colour of your skin got to do with your ability to do anything? It doesn't. But epigenetically speaking, we are... We have become the people we are based on thousands of generations before us. Yes. Yeah. Epigenetics is carried forward. Epigenetics changes is driven by a number of different things. Um, lifestyle can change it. For example, if you're in a society where farming is the only way to live, there's a very strong epigenetic tendency to become more of that kind of person who's good at farming. And even the, the, the very fact of working, like if you work, for example, rather than say idle it around, you'll tend to move epigenetically towards a hardworking temperament. People know that, but, but there's epigenetics in that. Now, what actually happened, say, back 10,000 years ago when, when farming started in the Middle East, it was at first very gradual. It took a long time for people to, to learn how to do this. But what was interesting, actually, is when 
agriculture spread across Europe, as an example, it wasn't actually so much the initial people taking up agriculture, it was migrants from the Middle East moving in who were good at farming already, and they mixed with the local people, but they basically, genetically speaking, they, they outbred them because there were far more of them. So it's very difficult to change the epigenetics. It takes a long time. And one of the ways that the societies work is we have cultural technologies which drive epigenetic change. And we call these things religions. So Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, not really religion. They're all, they're all cultural technologies which have the effect of making epigenetic changes over multiple generations. For example, there are practices like chastity. If you restrict sexual activity, especially in, in adolescence and in, in you know, early adulthood, you'll have a distinct epigenetic change. And we, we've seen this in rats. If you expose rats to females when they're, when they're just at the age of puberty, they're quite different from those that haven't had that experience. So chastity is one. Um, fasting is another. The um, Ramadan fast of Islam, for example, where they don't eat during daylight for a whole month, which is really, they don't even drink. It's very tough. That has an epigenetic effect on the individual, and that affects their character, but it also affects the next generation. So that's, that's how civilizations basically work. You get, you get changes in lifestyle, which has a demand for different kinds of character, and then you get these cultural technologies, these religions, who actually change epigenetics into a form that will make people help people to succeed in that kind of environment. The teachings of our ancestors, like you know, be be afraid of the dark, and you know, should worry about what's under your bed, and things like that. The children seem to have is that is that the same sort of vein? Oh, I think I think fear of the dark and of spiders and snakes is pretty much hardwired in, but. I'm, I'm all talking about things like control sexual behavior and family behavior. Like, for example, you don't commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery is a perfect example of a, um, of a cultural technology that actually has an effect on character. I mean, and what point does religion become just teachings of how to behave uh, as opposed to an, an ingrained genetic feeling, like an epigenetic feeling of, you know, you're afraid of the dark, but you shouldn't sleep with your mate's husband because it's the wrong thing to do. Is, is one just like a created technology, uh, created by man for man, and the other is just hardwired? Well, <laughs> that's a difficult. I'm a Christian, so I would tend to say that God is is behind all this kind of stuff. But but the fact of the matter is the 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 rules contained in religion um, simply have this kind of effect. Now, whether they were divinely inspired at some stage or whether they, they just evolved by nature, because there is a sort of, okay, if you have different kinds of culture, different kinds of religions competing with each other, a religious system that helps people to become more successful um, is going to be more, it's going to be help. The people who have that are going to have more kids and they're going to be more dominant. They're going to have better lives and so forth. A good example is Judaism. Now, Judaism has a system of um, law, which is a really intricate one that, that controls a whole lot of things, not just chastity and things like fasting, but also, you know, the way you work and the days of the week, Sabbath, Sabbath keeping and so forth. There's a whole mass of different regulations controlling life. That actually has a profound epigenetic effect, especially over generations, in creating a kind of character which is very, very good at business. And that's what that's what Judaism is. It's a cultural technology that drives people to be good at business. And, and even even sort of elements like the fact that um, 
you know, the, 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 the prestige of study, of studying the Torah, which is a huge thing in traditional Judaism. Um, it's part of that whole thing, because if you study and study and study and study the Torah, you're actually creating an epigenetic change in yourself, which makes you more likely your children will be good at business, for example. It's measurable. Like, how can you, at what point can you say this is because of your epigenetics? Is this a code that's written into to the genome? How, how does one observe it? Well, that's when you can study it. You can do tests. So, for example, we one, one of the things we're doing with, with rats is we're studying effects of two things, mild food restriction, which is equivalent to the similar effect of things like chastity and so forth, and also what we call use stress, moderate stress, which actually sort of toughens the individual, makes them more confident, more aggressive, for example. Um, what you can actually do is you can get samples and you can and you can you can you can do a, what's called a, a methylone. You can actually go in and you can you can test which genes are turned on or off to what extent. So for example, we know that when you restrict food for rats, certain kinds of genes are turned on or off. And in the, that also depends on what section of the brain. So the, for example, the effect on the amygdala can be different from the effect on the hippocampus. So, so the epigenetic changes aren't, aren't the same across all parts of the body. So ex exactly the kind of influence causes a different epigenetic change in different parts of the, of the brain and different parts of the body. It's complicated enough. It is very complicated. You can measure right? it. You can, measure it. You, you, you can actually, we actually do. Um, you can actually, you can actually, actually study the whole epigenome. Like you can study the the, the the genome. You can study the epigenome too, and you can work out exactly what genes are turned on or off. Such a complex uh, discussion, and and one needs to be one needs to have a PhD in it to sort of or in in that field to understand it. Uh, and it sounds like you have studied it to the point where you you have the equivalent. Well, um, actually, no, I, I'm afraid I don't, Isaac. I'm actually I'm actually a mere historian. I I, I speak the words and understand it, but the people in my research team know far more than I do. That's for sure. I've got um, the, my head of my research is is been working in this field for decades, mostly in terms of cancer and things like that. So he understands it far better than I do. The layman, you would have uh, a much better understanding of it. But yes. I think one of the issues when when you speak about it uh, that you will come across is people, when they hear like what you said before about uh, if we can sort of get an injection into people to to help them come out of this, yes. um, that that is that is a big uh, pill for people to swallow because they see it as you saying that this this group of people is the same league as another group. And that, that's a lot for, a pe for people to really uh, take on board, particularly now in a society where we only read a headline. If it comes up with a headline, you know, Jim Pemmon says this, then all of a sudden people take that and they, they only um, create a view on you and what you're saying by, by that headline. And, and when I look up your name, eugenics is something that comes up a lot. Yes, as I'm sure, as I'm sure you, you know, know why eugenics comes up, Isaac. It's because people don't understand the difference between eugenics and epigenetics. They sound similar, but they're totally different. Eugenics is genetic selection. It's assuming that certain kinds of people are superior to others, and you select and you and you breed the genes. Epigenetics is different. Epigenetics says the genetic difference is not important. What's the matter is how the genes are turned on or off. So it's in a way it's the opposite. See, racists love eugenics they don't like epigenetics because it undercuts their whole point 
that some people, mostly the racists themselves, are superior to others. Well, I don't accept that at all. So there is this confusion because people don't understand what the words mean. But no, I, I don't believe in, in eugenics at all. I think that's actually people people grossly exaggerate how important genetics is. It's far, far, far less important than people think. And epigenetics is far, far more important. So one thing I wouldn't do to try and improve society is any kind of eugenic change. But the point about the thing is I'm not suggesting that people go out and start mass inoculating Aboriginals or whatever. That'd be crazy. What I'm saying is if we could develop a treatment, the most immediate application would be in terms of things like addiction. It should be, you've got somebody who's a drug addict, who's in a hopeless spiral, who's losing health, whose life expectancy is low, who's homeless, who's got all sorts of problems. And there's a solution, which is an injection, let's say. If it is, it could be something different. Who knows? It could be a pheromone, it could be anything, which could actually help that person to live a happy, productive, useful life. And they can get out of their spiral and they can just improve and go. Now, if that was shown to work, wouldn't people in that situation say, yes, I don't want to be a hopeless drug addict, a drug addict or, or, or alcoholic. I want to live a happy, good life. And they take this and it works for them. Now, what will also happen, though, too, is that this stuff will tend to be used off-label. Because what will happen is if people like you and me were to get access to it, we will become that much more hardworking and productive that would give us a fantastic boost. So, for example, if you've got students in a, in a course, say, like, and they start taking this treatment, maybe off-label, and they become hardworking and productive and they they soar at the top of the class, and they become doctors, and they become accountants, and they become entrepreneurs. People are going to look at this and say, what are you doing? Well, I'm using this stuff. I want some of that. That's more, almost certainly what would happen. You're not going to go out to a group of people and say, you should take this. You're going to start people saying, I want this, because I want to be like that. And, and frankly, I would be in first in the queue if this is ever available, because I know quite well I could be a lot more hardworking and a lot more productive if I had this. How, uh, how students use Adderall. They know yes. that they can use it for benefits. Uh, and it is, I'm not sure in Australia how widespread it is, but particularly in the US, that's uh, as common as Tic Tacs when it comes oh, yes. to students. They it love it. It is too. And they use it because it gives them concentration, even though it has some terrible side effects. Imagine if you had a treatment that was available to you as a student that was far more effective in terms of making you successful but had no bad effects at all. The only side effects you, you might not like, it'd probably drop your um, your libido to some extent. Well, it should, that's the way it would work. But you become more focused, more long-term thinking, more disciplined, more hardworking, just 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 more effective. And, and, and people want to succeed. People want to, people want to do well. So that's that's a, a powerful thing. If I could, if we could develop a treatment that would work for this. It would it would it would take off like crazy. It's like the um these drugs that they they developed for um what do you call it um diabetes, which are now used off label because they've been found to have significant effects on weight loss. And we we go the Ozempic. Um, there's yes. a few different ones that people are using uh, quite a bit. Um, well, this would also this this treatments that I'm developing would actually help help weight less because it'd make people more disciplined. So they'd be much, much easier to, to avoid the, the fatty food and the sugar and stuff and then get exercise. The discipline, long-term thinking is all part of what it's about. So it would be, it would be a dynamite treatment. If we could develop it, you, you wouldn't have to persuade anybody to take it. They'd be, they'd be knocking the doors down to get hold of it. And once that happens, the whole world's going to change.
because you're going to get people like Aboriginals doing it too. And suddenly they're going to become incredibly successful as well. And then anybody else is going to say, wow, I want to be part of that. They, they might not want to. It's up to them because there will be changes in character. You, 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 take, you might become a bit less social in, in, a, in, a, in a general sense. But generally speaking, in terms of success in industrial society, this stuff would be absolute gold. Because you, you, you have to be careful. You, like you're talking about people who are out in uh, regional areas, or or you're talking about all Aboriginal people. Um, anybody, of course. It doesn't matter where they are. But people in regional areas might not want to take it. This is the thing. Got to remember, there are going to be changes in character that you might not like. So, for example, if you've got an Aboriginal who was an outback settlement to become temperamentally a lot more like a a you know medical student. Or something like that, you know, very hardworking, disciplined stuff. They wouldn't be as social. And, uh, and I'm fascinated. Um, I'm fascinated by the success of, of gyms because it has just grown. It's synonymous throughout Australia with with gyms mowing, but there are other um, many other uh, ventures throughout the entire group. Um, Five thousand franchisees. Where did the franchisee idea come from, and and why do you think it's been so successful? Well, um, I was mowing lawns. I had subcontractors. Um, I was puddling along. I used to build up and sell lawn mowing rounds. That was what I did in the um, 80s to, to a large extent. And um, then, then a, a competitor came, which was franchising, which is VIP. And they came from Adelaide. And I, I, they just terrified me. I thought these guys would crush me. They had 250 franchisees. So I basically franchised in self-defense. I thought if I don't do something, then these guys will just eat me alive. And uh, somebody asked me at the beginning how many franchises I might have one day, and I said, maybe if it works well, maybe 100. I, just, I was just surprised. But the key idea I had, which is really was the right idea, and I made a lot of really, really, really dumb mistakes, including some in the last six months, I can tell you. But I did have one concept. I wanted a system that would be really attractive to franchisees. So we put in, I put in places all kinds of weird stuff, like the fact that people could pay the same base fee and they could they could earn whatever they like. They're going to earn millions of dollars in gyms. You pay the same base fee. You have absolute right to territory. Jobs coming to territory you get. Otherwise, you're not limited. You can work wherever you like. You can vote out your own franchisor. You can move to a different region, different franchisor if you want to. You can veto changes to your own manual. There's a whole stack of things I put in to say how... What would I want to do if I was a potential franchisee? So I made it as attractive as I possibly could. And then we just kept on looking at ways to make franchises happier, what kind of training, what kind of support, you know, how often should we have meetings? We just looked at everything and said, what's your aim? How can I make my franchisees delighted? And surprisingly successful. I remember when we first started, I mean, I was talking to uh, Joel uh, from Jim's group, real good guy. And he was talking about one of the things that you guys wanted to do was really push the idea that for young people or, you know, people in their 20s, like university has been seen for the last 20, 30 years as a prerequisite to life, yes. to moving into the adult world. And I've been pretty very distant on that idea for a long time. I had no idea what I wanted to do at 18 years old. And I absolutely did not want to get deep into debt. That's what I was, I was pretty confident I didn't want to do that. And yet we see so many young people dive straight into university. They're terrified of going out into the real world without a piece of paper saying what they do. Um, 
But I think that if I had done that, I wouldn't be in the position I am in now. I wouldn't value hard work. I would have I would have half-assed it through the entire things, the whole P's get degrees uh, mentality. And I'm, I would I would probably be a teacher. That's what I would have done because that's the only thing I could get into, which is horrifying to consider that uh, someone who didn't do overly well at school, the only thing he could get into was teaching other children how to be good at school. Uh, it is it is quite strange. Um, yeah, look, you're, you're quite right about that too. There's, yeah. there's an over emphasis on tertiary education. I mean, just take a guy like Dan Carl, who's one of my franchisors. He he was actually a school high school dropout, dropped out in year ten, went to work for McDonald's places, bought a lawn mowing franchise um, with great trepidation, but was quite successful at, at his peak. Turned over close to a million dollars a year. He's now become one of our major franchisors. This guy's a multi-millionaire. He's in his twenties. Okay, a high school dropout, never been to university in his life. That's the possibility if you've got the right character. And again, it's come back to what we talked about before. It's all to do with character. If you've got a great character, it doesn't matter where you start off. You can start off mowing lawns. You can start off delivering pizza. It doesn't matter. You'll see the opportunity and you'll go for them. And I think education, look, education basically gets you in, in, in an interview. If you've got a, an, an employer gets a whole kind of applicants, I'll just say, oh, well, how do I choose? Okay, if you've been to university, if you've got a degree, you've got a master's, whatever, then you've at least shown the ability to work for a few years consistently. I'll scrub anybody else and I'll just interview you lot. That's, how, that's what it works for. It doesn't actually teach you anything very much. It's just a way of helping employers select a candidate. And then when they get the job, they, they learn how to do the job. Let's face it, a lawyer who comes out of law school knows nothing. That's why most three quarters of them can't get your job because, because there's no demand for them. Once they've worked for a couple of years, they know how to be a lawyer, then they're employable. That must be to leave university and then struggle to get a job for one, two, three years. That's And we're loaded up with this vast student debt, yeah. I would think people ought to consider working with their hands to a large extent. There's a lot more opportunity, especially for guys who aren't necessarily so good at education in doing something manual. You can make a lot of money. You know, carpenters these days are getting paid $60, $70, $80 an hour. Carpenters, for heaven's sake. There's not many white-collar workers making that kind of money. And if you're a carpenter, you can have your own business. You can become a builder. You become a developer. You can buy properties. You can develop. You can do all kinds of things. There's a wonderful book called The Millionaire Next Door, which is about American millionaires. And they're actually typically people who are like me, and they are like your tech gurus and so forth, the people who have gone into the basic trade-type areas and become successful and employ people. That's how it's done. And it's all to do with character. Very much for your time, mate. I appreciate that. We've all got places to go and people to see uh, this morning. So thank you uh, for uh, for giving up your time. And uh, is there anything you'd like to add to people listening to this um, who are interested in perhaps following a career with gyms? Um, just www.gyms.net. And if you're interested in biohistory, www.biohistory.org. Have a look at that. There's some, there's some videos in to explain the whole thing. I think there's a, there's a long conversation to have be had on this. So thank you very much for your time, mate. And I think it would, to really get to the crux of it, we'd need three or four hours. But uh, <laughs> thank you for your time. I, I do appreciate that. Good, good. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.